On a chilly January night in 1968 in the college town of Ames, Iowa, a young Iowa State college student would leave her dorm, headed for the corner of Lincoln Way and Beach Street. She had just received a call in response to a post she'd made on a campus bulletin board. She had been looking for someone to take her to the Chicago, Illinois area so that she could visit her family for the weekend. Sources would report that Sheila was seen waiting at the intersection for the male caller who had agreed to take her. But unfortunately, that would be the last time she'd be seen alive. This is Midwest Mystery Files, Episode 15, The Murder of Sheila Jean Collins. Hello everyone, and welcome to Midwest Mystery Files. I'm your host, Jeremiah, with just a few quick things before we start. Midwest Mystery Files is a true crime podcast focused on missing and murdered cases within the Midwestern region of the United States. I can be found on all major podcast platforms, as well as on YouTube with delayed episodes. Social media and contact info will be listed at the end of the episode. I also want to note two additional things. If you follow me on social media, you may already know, but I have opted to change my release schedule. While I plan to try and keep it between two and three weeks between episodes, my official schedule is basically now, I will release it when I have time to finish it. I know this is a bit of a retraction from a few episodes ago when I felt I was back on the straight and narrow for releases, but essentially, between family life, work life, and some rather hard-hitting seasonal depression, I just can't do all the stuff required to make a quality episode every time if I commit to a certain schedule. Right now, as always, the focus will be quality over quantity. Which brings me to my next announcement. Despite this departure from a consistent schedule, and despite the fact that I stated in the social media announcement that I would be canceling my Patreon plans because of that departure, I have decided to go ahead and launch a Patreon for anyone interested anyway. I'm mostly just looking for help in funding my news and record searches, so for the time being I have set a $3 tier and a $5 tier, and may add more later depending on interest. $3 comes with access to episodes two days before the rest of the world, and $5 comes with early access, plus one bonus episode a month. These episodes will be a little less formal, and will cover a variety of Midwest oddities, including solved crimes, conspiracies, cults, paranormal phenomena, etc. Topics are subject to change per patron input, though. If you're worried about me keeping on schedule for those episodes, do not worry. I have the first three plotted already, and I have had collected information on them for quite some time so they're closer to being ready than any podcast episode I've ever done. Both tiers will also feature ad-free episodes if the day ever comes I get sponsored, and I will also give all patrons a shout-out at the end of the podcast. If you're interested, the page is up now. I believe if you sign up now, charging begins at the beginning of March. You can find me on Patreon by searching for Midwest Mystery Files, I will also add the link to the link tree, which can be found on my Instagram profile and listed as my homepage on the Facebook page. I will also pin the announcement post with a link to the top of the Facebook page. Thank you to anyone who decides to check it out. Now, without further delay, on to today's episode. Sheila Jean Collins was born August 2nd, 1949, to James and Muriel Collins in Elmhurst, Illinois. Little is stated in the public record about Sheila's early life, but she was one of three sisters, and shortly after her birth, the family moved to Evanston, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago, located 12 miles north of downtown Chicago, on the shore of Lake Michigan. 
She was noted as being a very friendly child who was also a bit of a goofball. In 1967, Sheila would graduate from the Evanston Township High School, and that fall she would make the journey five and a half hours, 355 miles, to the west to attend school at Iowa State University in Ames, Iowa, where she would major in English and speech. Sheila would stay busy, as alongside taking classes, she would also take synchronized swimming, as well as work as a dishwasher in her dormitory cafeteria. She was noted as not being a big drinker and stayed away from drugs. In late January of 1968, Sheila was wishing to take a trip home to see her family during the weekend of Friday, January 26th. At this time, Sheila did have a boyfriend by the name of Ira, who attended the University of Northern Illinois. Despite the distance, the two were smitten with each other and communicated often. There was also said to be a chance of engagement in their future. At the time, Ira was on break and staying at home in Skogie, Illinois, just to the southwest of Sheila's hometown of Evanston. The two had originally planned for Ira to make the 350-mile trek to Ames and pick Sheila up, and the two would return to Evanston together. However, Ira was unable to make the trip due to mechanical and financial concerns. Determined to still make the trip, but not having a vehicle of her own, Sheila had to post for a ride. Now, whereas today, most students would most likely take to Facebook or other social media, looking for someone going the same way they are, in 1968, such advanced options weren't quite available. Instead, sometime in the days prior to January 26th, Sheila filled out a green 3x5 card and placed it on the Going My Way board on the Iowa State campus. The Going My Way board was a bulletin board that students could utilize by posting a location they were looking to go to in hopes that they may be able to hitch a ride with someone going in that same direction. On the evening of Friday, January 26th, Sheila would receive a phone call in regard to her card on the Going My Way board. Story County Sheriff J. Ivan Shally would later tell the press that a friend of Sheila's had told authorities that Sheila had received the call and that the man who had called was wanting to leave soon and that Sheila wasn't even sure what the name of the individual was. Sheila would pack her things, call her parents, and then walk out of her dormitory on her way to meet the individual. The last known sighting of Sheila that evening was at the corners of Beach Street and Lincoln Way in Ames, Iowa, waiting for her ride. In the early hours of Saturday, January 27th, Sheila's parents would become concerned when Sheila had not yet arrived. The drive should have taken approximately five and a half to six hours. At noon that day, they reported Sheila missing after she had still not shown. Saturday afternoon would come and continue on and soon become evening with still no sign of Sheila. Then. On Sunday, January 28th, a tragic discovery would be made. At approximately 2 p.m., Roger Hogel and his son would be fox hunting in rural Colo, just to the east of Ames. The two were traveling down a gravel road when Roger's son would notice a foot sticking out of a roadside ditch. The two would further investigate and find the deceased body of Sheila Jean Collins. Authorities would state that Sheila had been found in the ditch covered by her green coat. Her body was found in a squatting position, resting on its knees and head. She was naked, except for her shirt, which had been pulled up around her neck. Her belongings, including her purse, clothes, and suitcase, were found approximately six feet away, in a field, just on the other side of a fence. Also found on Sheila's person was a nylon rope, which would be determined via autopsy had been used to strangle her. A metal pipe had also been found, likely used as a tightening mechanism. Press releases from January 29, 1968, indicate that police believe Sheila had been murdered elsewhere and then dumped in the location. 
Further autopsy reports would find that while the crime scene may have suggested an attack of a sexual nature, there appeared to be no sign of sexual assault. With Story County Medical Examiner Dr. William Bliss telling the press, quote, The fact that her body was almost unclothed leads one to surmise we are dealing with someone who had a sex deviation. It's a very strange case. There's nothing to indicate sexual molestation or rape. No evidence of molestation in any way. There wasn't a mark on her. Usually in cases of this kind, there's some evidence of torture or brutality. But we have found none. In my opinion, she was not raped. Bliss would go on to state that he did not know if Sheila had been undressed before or after she was murdered, but he had concluded that the death occurred within 24 hours of when Sheila was last seen at 8.30 p.m. on January 26th. When the question was brought up about suspects, Story County Attorney Charles E. Vanderbur stated, quote, We're not ruling out anything. It could have been another woman. It could have been the person who called and said he would pick her up. It could have been more than one person. Or it could have been someone who stopped his or her car and offered her a ride. She might have thought it was the person who was supposed to drive her to Chicago, but might have been someone else. Vanderbur would go on to state that Ira, Sheila's boyfriend, had been questioned by authorities, but was not being considered a suspect. He would also state that, at the time, there were 15 men working Sheila's case, including several from the Iowa Bureau of Criminal Investigation. Reports would also indicate that Vanderbur had asked for assistance from the FBI. However, they had denied the request due to not having jurisdiction. Over the next several weeks, authorities would continue to investigate diligently, but would make little headway. In a February 20th, 1968 Cedar Rapids Gazette article, Vanderbur would state, We have questioned several hundred persons, and I would guess that we aren't half done. That article would go on to state that there were six individuals working 16-hour days on the case. In a June 27, 1968 Associated Press article, it was noted that another murder in the state had been looked at as potentially being linked to Sheila's. On April 6, 1968, the nearly half-naked body of 25-year-old Geraldine Maggart was discovered in Johnson County, Iowa, near the Coralville Reservoir. She had been reported missing from Cedar Rapids, Iowa in March, an autopsy found that Geraldine had died from beating and exposure. It also found that she was tragically three months pregnant. Maggart was last seen on March 22, 1968, leaving her Cedar Rapids apartment with a suitcase before stopping at a local bank to withdraw money. Her car was later located at the Cedar Rapids airport. Investigators initially believed there may have been a connection between Geraldine and Sheila's murder due to the circumstances around their disappearances and similarities in murder scenes. However, by June, the BCI agents felt that there was a 99% chance the cases were not related. In December of 1968, a Story County grand jury would call upon Iowa State University to make changes to its humanities curriculum, citing an influx of student radicals being encouraged by militant teachers in the humanities curriculum. I really only bring this up because Sheila's murder was named as a driving factor behind the jury's plea. Rumor has it, but is thus far unstantiated by anyone connected to the case, that County Attorney Charles Vanderbur was looking to run for Iowa Attorney General and in doing so had fed false information to the press that Sheila, contrary to what everybody said about her, had been a drug user or a radical which led to her murder. I do want to stress again that this is unsubstantiated, 
Although an article from March of 1968 does note federal narcotics agents had assisted in the case, but Vanderbur had declined to share why they were involved. I can't really imagine why they'd be involved unless Vanderbur gave them a specific reason to be. An August 8, 1969 article from the Cedar Rapids Gazette reported that a link was being looked at between Sheila's murder and the murder of seven young women in the Ann Arbor Esplante area of Michigan that had occurred between July 9, 1967 and July 23, 1969. It was noted that Sheila's murder fit a pattern with the victims in the Michigan murders, most specifically 23-year-old Jane Mixer, who had also posted on a rideshare board before her murder in March of 1969. It's at this juncture that all reporting on Sheila's case essentially stops, most likely due to a lack of leads, as well as the fact that, unfortunately, this seemed to be a busy time in the state of Iowa for heinous murder cases. So the state's major newspapers moved on to other coverage. Through the lens of the time, looking back at older articles, it seems apparent all was done that could have been done, and there was a smooth investigation. However, later reports have made note that that may not have been the case. In a 1999 interview with the Iowa State Daily, then Ames Chief of Police Dennis Ballantine, who had been fresh on the force in 1968, noted that there was not a lot of cooperation between investigators, stating, quote, There was not a lot of communication. There was a lot of territorialism going on. It was basically three different investigations. People were withholding evidence from each other and really holding up the investigation. It was a lot of one-upmanship. No one understand that there were going to be no heroes. They just needed to get the damn job done. Valentin would go on to state that the law agencies really had to keep it under wraps to the press that the investigation was not going well. In the 2021 podcast, Greenlee Investigates, The Murder of Sheila Jean Collins, a podcast put together by students at Iowa State, former Story County Prosecutor Mary Richards, who looked into the case in 1982, found that the medical examiner hadn't taken fingernail scrapings from Sheila, which is something that should have been standard for a homicide. Detective Sergeant Anthony Rode, with the Story County Sheriff's Office, also made the point that the rope and pipe used in Sheila's murder was lost early in the investigation, citing Ames PD as the responsible party in that circumstance. It was also noted that Sheila's body was released and she was cremated within the week of her murder. So, to this day, any potential chance to gather further DNA has been lost. I don't bring this up to knock investigators. This was most likely the standard at the time, and I won't wrong a family for wanting to put their daughter to rest. I just wanted to clear that point up in case anyone had questions about the chance for an exhumation. Further information would be revealed in the podcast that was not readily public knowledge. Primarily, that not only was Sheila last seen on the corner of Lincoln Way and Beach Street, but she was also seen getting into a blue Volkswagen. Not only was she seen getting into this Volkswagen, but a man was also questioned who had been driving a blue Volkswagen at the time of Sheila's murder. Now, while it's certainly possible there was more than one blue Volkswagen cruising around Ames at that time, a few other glaring facts about this individual would stand out. Primarily that he matched the description of an individual who was seen looking at the rideshare board where Sheila had posted for a ride the day before she was murdered. He also matched the description of a man seen driving the Volkswagen that Sheila got into. The individual had been brought to the attention of investigators after he had been caught in a sting by police who were investigating reports that an individual had been calling female students 
and trying to get them to meet while using a fake name. He had reportedly gotten aggressive with one female and abandoned his plans with another woman when she showed up with her brother. The individual had been questioned in a polygraph test and was noted as showing deception when he stated that he had never used the alias Gary Martin, which was a name used by the man who had tried to contact the students. At the time of the sting, the individual was no longer driving the Volkswagen, as he had been borrowing that vehicle from his friend. But when he was arrested, a rope similar to the one that was used to strangle Sheila was found in the trunk of the vehicle that he was driving at the time of the sting. He was also initially lied to police about ever driving the Volkswagen, but would later recant and admit to driving it. It's also noted that he matched the description of a man who was suspected in the murder of 48-year-old Dorothy Miller in Burlington, Iowa, in August of 1969. Dorothy was a realtor who was found stabbed and sexually assaulted in a house that she was showing on August 21, 1969. Dorothy had first shown the house the previous Friday to an individual who claimed to go by the name of Robert Clark. At the first showing, Dorothy's husband had attended with her while she would go by herself after Robert requested a showing again on the 21st. Police would later conclude that Robert Clark was a made-up name, but they believed the man had most likely murdered before. The man had told the Millers that he lived in Des Moines with his family. The man questioned in Sheila's killing was also living in Des Moines with his family in August of 1969. It's unclear if the similarities between the two cases was something that was noted in the police files the Greenlee Investigates team was privy to, or if they had found this independently. They do mention another Ames area man in the podcast who was questioned, and while he didn't seem like the most savory individual, I don't think he's likely enough of a suspect to cover here, and I do encourage you to check out the Greenlee Investigates podcast to learn more. Two other men, however, that are mentioned in the podcast and almost every other source I used to look into this case, don't hail from Ames, or even Iowa. They're from a few states over to the northeast, Michigan. Earlier I mentioned a connection being looked at between Sheila's murder and the murder of seven women in Michigan between 1967 and 1969. The victims, identified as Mary Therese Flazar, Joan Elspeth Schell, Jane Louise Mixer, Marilyn Skelton, Don Luis Balsam, Alice Elizabeth Callum, and Karen Sue Bainaman were between the ages of 13 and 21, and were all abducted, raped, beaten, and murdered, typically by stabbing or strangulation, before being found within a 15-mile radius of Washtenaw County in southeastern Michigan. Their murders would collectively be known as the Michigan Murders. Of the seven murders, two of them have seen arrest warrants and convictions, the first being the arrest of 22-year-old John Norman Collins in July of 1969. Collins was arrested one week after the murder of the final victim, 18-year-old Karen Sue Bainaman. Collins, who was already being looked at by police in the murder, was further implicated after his uncle, State Police Sergeant David Lee, returned home from vacation and was informed by his peers of John Collins' suspected involvement. Collins had been staying at the Leakes' home sporadically while the family was on vacation with the sole purpose of letting the family's German shepherd out. The Leakes had noted numerous paint marks covering the floor of the family basement and that several items, including a bottle of ammonia, some washing powder, and a canister of black spray paint, were missing from the household upon their return. 
When Leek allowed investigators to search his home, several hairs were found near the washing machine. Hairs that would match hairs found on the body of Karen Sue Bainaman. The discovery of these hairs, as well as other mounting evidence, would lead to Collins' arrest, and in August of 1970, he was sentenced to life in prison. While nothing has ever definitively leaked John Norman Collins to the other murders, he, for many years, was speculated to be the culprit in the other six murders. That is, until 2005, when 62-year-old Gary Laterman was convicted for murder of 23-year-old University of Michigan law student Jane Mixer, who had been considered the third of the Michigan murder victims. Jane disappeared on March 20, 1969, after posting a note on a college bulletin board looking for a ride across the state to her hometown of Muskegon, Michigan. She was found the following morning, 15 miles away, atop a grave in Denton Cemetery in Van Buren Township. Jane was fully clothed, covered with her own raincoat, and had a copy of the novel Catch-22 placed by her side. An autopsy revealed Jane had been shot twice in the head with a 22 caliber pistol, then garroted with a nylon stocking that did not belong to her. The pathologist also stated that Mixer had not been sexually assaulted, that the death had occurred at approximately 3 a.m. on March 21st, and that she had not been killed at the location where her body had been discovered. Mixer had not been subjected to a sexual assault. However, her tights had been lowered to expose her thighs, which the pathologist suspected suggested a sexual motive behind the murder. The aforementioned factors, plus the fact that she was not beaten, mutilated, or stabbed, separated her from the other victims. However, for many years, she was long considered to be another victim at the hand of a serial killer, most likely John Norman Collins. That was until the early 2000s, when some young blood in the Michigan State Detective Pool decided to take a look at some of the old cold cases, and they found the detraction in Jane's murder from the others more than jarring. When Jane's body was first discovered, detectives had taken scrapings of a single drop of blood on Jane's hand, as well as sweat found on the pantyhose wrapped around Jane's neck. It was through this that Gary Laterman would be found. Laterman was a pharmaceutical drug salesman who traveled all over Michigan at the time of Jane's murder. However, in 2001, he was a retired nurse who had been arrested after passing of a forged prescription for painkillers. Upon his conviction, he had to give a DNA swab, and he would go on to avoid jail time upon agreeing to drug rehab. But it wouldn't be long before the DNA from Jane Mixer's crime scene would be linked to his, and he would be arrested in November of 2004. Upon searching Letterman's house, investigators found two Polaroid photos of a 16-year-old South Korean girl who had lived with Laterman and his family as a foreign exchange student. The images showed the girl, drugged and unconscious, lying on Laterman's bed with her clothing pulled back to expose her genitals. Authorities would note the pose was a grotesque reminder of Jane Mixer's corpse. Laterman's handwriting would be determined to match writing found on a phone book in the University of Michigan dorms after Jane's murder that said, Mixer and Muskegon. His roommate from 1969 would tell police that Laterman did own a 22 caliber handgun at the time, and he also kept a close watch on the news of the Michigan killer. It would be revealed during trial that only the DNA from the sweat found on the pantyhose was matched to Laterman, and that the DNA found in the blood drop was traced back to a different convicted felon who would have been two years old in 1969 and had absolutely no connection to Jane Mixer. This would lead the defense to state that the lab was obviously contaminated. However, 
Ligerman would be found guilty of Jane Mixer's murder and would be sentenced to life in prison. Rounding back to Sheila Collins, in the years since her murder, there seems to have been a suspect or two, and a lot of focus right after her murder, but not much else in the years since, which now only leaves us with theories. There's really only a few things we can look at. First, we have the man police questioned, who was confirmed to be driving a blue Volkswagen, matched the description of a guy who was seen looking at the rideshare board, and was also seen driving the Volkswagen that picked up Sheila. He then lied to police about driving said car, and was found to be in possession of rope similar to that which was used to strangle Sheila. He was also caught in a sting that was coordinated to find the man who was calling various women on the Iowa State campus. And lastly, he matches the sketch of a suspect in another murder from the following year. This guy certainly seems to be a shoe-in, and based on what we do know, it's pretty easy to say he's our guy based on proximity, behavior, and vehicle alone. So we don't know that's the problem, though. Everything we have is circumstantial. There could have been multiple blue Volkswagens. Witness testimony isn't always reliable, especially when you're talking about seeing someone in a car on a cold January night. And he could have had nylon rope in his car for any number of reasons. The most damning thing here is indeed that he was caught calling students for clearly nefarious reasons. But beyond that, there's never been anything to definitively link him to Sheila's murder. The fact he matches the description of a suspect in another murder is kind of an odd note here as well. If this is indeed our guy, it seems strange that he would go from murdering a young college student via strangulation with no sexual assault to repeatedly stabbing a 48-year-old woman and sexually assaulting her. Killers definitely change up M.O.s, but that one seems a little too drastic. I just think if he's the culprit in one of these murders, it's just that one, and not both. This now brings us to John Norman Collins, and Gary Lederman. You may have noted I spent a little more time on Jane Mixer and Gary Lederman than I did on John Collins. This is just because the case of Jane Mixer does mirror Sheila's murder a lot more than John Collins and Karen Sue Bainaman. Right off the bat, while he is a popular choice among internet theorists, I don't really think there's much to go on with John Collins. Yeah, he murdered a college co-ed, and maybe murdered more, but so did a lot of murderers at the time. I'm not trying to be dismissive, but without something really tying him to Iowa in January of 1968, just don't really have much to theorize with here. When it comes to Jane Mixer and Gary Laterman, we do have a bit more to work with. To start with similarities, we have a young student looking for a ride. She gets picked up and is found murdered a short time later. Both victims have their thighs or genitals exposed, both are not sexually assaulted, both are covered by their coats, and both are garroted. The differences here are are that Jane Mixer was shot as well, and she was left in a more public place where she was guaranteed to be found, while Sheila was left on a rural route where it could have taken a bit more time to find her if anybody came by. Jane did have her book placed next to her, but Sheila's personal possessions were also found close by her. Similarities here certainly seem to outweigh the differences, the biggest being the gunshot and that these happened in different states. As far as Gary Lederman is concerned, even though he was convicted of murder for Jane Mixer, we once again have nothing to tie him to Iowa in January of 1968. Sure, he was a salesman, but I've seen nothing that shows he ever traveled to Iowa to make sales. I also can't ignore the obvious DNA contamination in the labs. It does make it hard to believe 100% that he's our guy in Jane Mixer's murder, because who's to say the DNA in the sweat 
wasn't cross-contaminated as well. You also have him owning a common handgun and a handwriting match. It should be noted that handwriting analysis is not considered an exact science and has been questioned a lot over the years. I'm not giving the guy a free pass here, though. He's clearly a sick scumbag considering the photos found in his home and what he did to that poor girl. In the case of Jane Mixer, though, I honestly find it kind of surprising he was convicted, as the DNA debacle alone seems to be cause for reasonable doubt. And if I can't say that I 100% believe he killed Jane Mixer, I can't particularly say I believe he killed Sheila Collins. If Wiederman didn't kill Jane, though, there's still always the possibility that someone who was prone to travel, who has not been identified, did indeed kill both women. This past January marked 54 years since Sheila Jean Collins left her Iowa State dorm thinking she was getting a ride back home to Illinois, but she unfortunately never made it. This young woman, a sister, a daughter, just 18 years old, who had her whole life ahead of her, had that life taken before it truly ever began. Instead, someone else got sick thrills and got to keep on living their life. I know 54 years seems like a long time, but in reality, Sheila's killer could only be in their mid-70s, which certainly isn't too old for a jail cell. As per usual, I encourage everyone to share Sheila's story. We still have a chance to jog someone's memory. A memory that could be key in solving a case that is beyond deserving to be closed. If you have any information on the murder of Sheila Jean Collins, please contact the Story County Sheriff's Office at 515-382-6566. Furthermore, if you have information on the murder of Geraldine Maggart, please contact the Johnson County Sheriff's Office at 319-356-6020. And if you have information on the murder of Dorothy Miller, please contact the Burlington Police Department at 319-753-8375. If you're looking for more information on the murder of Sheila Jean Collins, her case page at www.iowacoldcases.org has several articles linked that were heavily utilized in the making of this episode. I also recommend checking out the Greenlee Investigates, The Murder of Sheila Jean Collins podcast, which was put together by students at Iowa State. If you wish to let me know what you think happened, have case suggestions or comments, or just want to follow me and the show on social media, I can be found on Instagram at Midwest Mystery Files, Twitter at Files Midwest, and on Facebook by searching for Midwest Mystery Files. You can also email me at MidwestMysteryFilesPod at gmail.com. I do also post photos and sometimes links relative to each case on social media, mainly on Facebook and Instagram. Lastly, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, and now Spotify, please feel free to rate and review the show. This helps make the show more visible in searches, and more importantly, helps bring attention to the cases I cover. Thank you to all who have done so already. Take care, everyone, and I will see you all next time.